introduction to Brad. So Brad, please come. We're happy to have you with us today. Thank you. Well, good morning, Cascades. <coughs> so good to be with you all. Yeah, I, I, have, I have memories even in this building. Uh, connections with Danny meant that as a teenager, I was here multiple times playing soccer in the gym. Uh, so it's fun to be back in the building in, in a much different capacity this morning. Uh, but it's so good to be with you all. And uh, yeah, I just feel really honored to be here and to be able to preach the Word of God here at Cascades with you this morning. To give a little introduction uh, about me, I, I served at Blue Mountain Church in Coquitlam for eight years up until this past fall. I'm now at the Way Church in Vancouver. I'm a church planter there, building up to, to Lord willing, plant a church in the next year or two, which is exciting. I'm finishing up a master's degree at Regent College. Most importantly, I have a wife and a perfect daughter. Who, <laughs> she's not perfect, but we won't go there. Maybe later this morning we'll go there. Um, but they, they were needed at, at the way this morning, so they couldn't be with me here. But uh, that fills out my family, and I wish you could meet them. Maybe someday you'll get to meet the better, the better part of the Berneski household. But um, I am going to bring a word this morning on contentment. Contentment, which is an elusive idea, and we'll get into it from Paul's text, from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. So if you have your Bibles with you, or if you have an app on your phone, or whatever it might be, I encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to look this morning at really the last big idea that Paul gets into in his letter to the Philippian church. It's his, his kind of way of wrapping this letter up with the final big idea and he talks about contentment. And so Philippians 4, and I'm going to start reading in verse 10. And I also just want to call on some grace. I realized once I got here this morning that I forgot to grab my glasses this morning. So I can still see, but it might be a little more challenging for me this morning. So Philippians 4, verses 10 to 13, I'm going to read for us. Paul writes this. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I hope, I sincerely hope that all of us this morning can think of a time in our lives when we were in some kind of a bind and someone generously came through for us. I hope you can think of an example of that in your life. Maybe you were down on your luck or out of work, or not enough money to pay the bills, Maybe you were sick in hospital, whatever it might have been. And somebody, whether it was a friend or a family member or a church member or a total stranger, somebody was there for you in that moment with a place to stay, with a note of encouragement, with a blessed gift brought to your door and dropped off for you, whatever it might be. Somebody came through for you in a big way. And I always, I always wonder in those moments, how do you repay someone for generosity like that? 
How do you even begin to repay someone for generosity like that? I'll give kind of a silly example that helps me, helps me think of it. Um, I love coffee. Really love coffee. Anybody else in the room coffee lovers here this morning? Okay, just a few hands. If you're honest, I think more hands would be up. And I really love good coffee. Like, it's, Vancouver's an amazing city to enjoy a good cup of coffee. So I love good coffee. I love to make myself a pour over at home. Don't, don't be, uh, don't be uh, confused by my Starbucks cup this morning. It was close by, okay? Um, but I love to make myself a good cup of coffee at home. And for years, I eyed this very pretentious, excessive, elaborate kettle that's specifically for making a good cup of pour-over coffee at home. Now, this kettle, I think we have a picture of it in the slide, potentially. Maybe, maybe not. Yes, we do. So you can see, it's a very pretentious, elaborate, and I'll say this, expensive kettle. I eyed it for years, probably like seven years. I like really wanted to buy this kettle. I just thought, this will make my coffee experience at home so much better. But I was a pastor, and it's expensive. So I eyed it, I, I kind of like longed for it, and I, and I never bought it. I finished up my time pastoring at Blue Mountain not too long ago, and, and my young adults group had me back, and I was able to speak at this, this evening event. And at the end of it, they brought me up on stage, and they kind of said like a thank you for the years kind of leading the community, and they presented me with a gift, and I opened it up, and it was this kettle. Apparently, I talked about it enough, so they knew, they knew this was an appropriate gift. And I remember opening it up, and like I saw the box, and I'm like, hey, what's, what's in actually inside the box? Because it, it can't be this. This is way too generous. And it's hard when you're opening a present in front of everybody, in a very public way, to know how to react and respond. You know, you feel kind of under pressure. But I open it, and I'm like, there's no way. And I was just awed by the generosity of this gift, and I open it in front of them, and I'm standing in front of this big group of, of young people who all have, like, contributed to get me this really generous gift, and I, and I stand there just like, what do I even do or say in this moment? Like, I am so thankful. Well, for starters, you can start by saying what? Thank you. Pretty good place to start. But what in the world is there beyond that in those moments of just being overawed by gratitude to say, and I think it's, this is a little sidebar, but I think it's so much of what our worship to God in the church is, right? It's, it's an overflow of, of what even can we say in response to the gracious gift that God has given us in Christ Jesus. It's thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for your gracious gift to us. And this is a little bit what's going on as Paul concludes his letter to the Philippian church at the end of this letter that we just read. As you may or may not know from previous readings of Philippians, when Paul writes this letter, he's in prison, likely in Rome, as an enemy of the state for preaching the gospel. He's been preaching the gospel that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. He's a traitor to the empire, and so he's in prison. And in the context of this time, when you were imprisoned like Paul was, you were on your own for food and drink and whatever provisions you needed. You were on your own. So think about that. You are completely dependent upon family and friends to come through for you in your time of need. Now, don't start looking around at your family and friends and going, yeah, would you come through for me? Like, hopefully none of us are ever in the position where we need this. But think about how dependent you are on those people in this time. 
And Paul's been an itinerant preacher. So he's been traveling. And so he finds himself at the heart of the empire, a thousand miles away from Jerusalem, which would have been his home. And he's all alone. He's literally starving to death in his Roman isolation. And then one day, in this predicament, one day out of nowhere, his door opens and a guy named Epaphroditus walks in. And Epaphroditus has arrived from Philippi, which seems to be well over 800 miles away, which in that time wasn't just like a quick two-hour flight, obviously. He's come a long way. And he's come from Philippi and a church that Paul had planted years before. And Epaphroditus shows up and he's got food. He's got water, he's got money, clothing, all the provisions that Paul needs. And Paul's literally saved from death by these gifts from Philippi. And Paul's left then in that follow-up moment where you're just like, what do I even say to this? How do I repay you for this kind of generosity? Like, I don't think a little keychain from the Colosseum gift shop's going to be enough to say thank you for your trip to Rome and these provisions. So when Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church that, that we've been looking at and we're going to learn from this morning, one of the main motivations for writing was simply to say thank you. Thank you to the church in Philippi. And it's at the end of this letter where we really see this enacted more than anywhere else. And so I want us to work through that text just slowly for a little bit here. Starting in verse 10, it kind of reads a little bit like a glorified thank you note, and we'll see this as we begin. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Now, he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. The word rejoice used here can also be translated as a celebration. I've had a great celebration in the Lord. Now, remind me again, where is Paul when he writes this? Paul is a prisoner far from home. But he writes, I'm having a great celebration in the Lord because of you. Now, this is Paul putting into practice what he's been preaching all throughout his letter to the Philippian church. This idea of joy amidst adversity. This is Paul putting that into practice. This is Paul doing the stuff. He says, I had this great celebration in the Lord. I've rejoiced because at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, we don't know exactly what he means by, specifically, by you had no opportunity to show it. It might just be because they were 800 miles away and Paul's essentially off the grid. It might have been because the Philippians were, were not wealthy, so there was some time required to like build up the assets to send Paul provisions and support. We're not totally sure. But in essence, Paul is saying, look, you had no opportunity to show it, but you were concerned about me. And that has become abundantly clear. So thank you. Thank you, Epaphroditus. Thank you, church. Your gifts, your money, your food saved my life. You were the family that I needed to depend on for my life, and you came through for me. So thank you. But look as he continues. He says in verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. We'll pause there. Uh, 
pardon me, Paul? He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Paul, what do you mean that you're not saying this because you're in need? Of course you're in need. You're in prison. We've been over this. You're about as in need as anyone could possibly be. But he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Meaning, I wasn't down, crying, sad or angry, tears, miserable, shouting at God, breaking apart my faith in prison because of what had been done to me. He's like, no, I was having a great celebration in the Lord and starving to death. But I'm having a great celebration in the Lord. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. In verse 12, he continues. He says, for I know what it is to be in need. Down and out, in poverty, health failing, all alone. Yeah, I know what that is like. Frankly, probably better than any of you. Read the book of Acts. Paul knows well what this is like. And he says, and I also know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to have more than enough. Food to spare, money to spare, roof over my head, a job, friends, family, to be part of a thriving, passionate church living in harmony and unity. Yes, I know what that's like too. I know both. And this is where Paul starts to sound a little bit like a wellness blogger that you might read today on like a WordPress site or something. You know, one of those headlines where they'll write like three steps to a more peaceful life. Maybe you've seen some of these headlines before. Five life hacks that'll transform the way you live. I changed this one habit and now I'm aging in reverse. You know, those kind of like baiting headlines. Paul says, I've learned the secret to being content. If that's not a baiting headline, I don't know what is. I've learned the secret to being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. Just subscribe to my mailing list, right? But the root word secret here that Paul uses is this Greek word mueo. And mueo in the Greek is actually a word that's associated with mystery. And so I was looking up kind of the semantic range for this word. And its first translated definition of mueo was to initiate into the mysteries. And some of what that means is it was a word used by Eastern mystery religion of the first century, that, where Paul was at. And I heard it kind of equated to like a first century equivalent of Scientology, so obviously super reputable and all that fun stuff. But in these Eastern religions, what would happen was you'd have is what were essentially initiation rituals that you would go through. And you go through these initiation rituals in order to discover the secret. In order to discover the secret. And Paul's invoking this as he uses this word mueo. He says, he says he's drawing that out and he's going, I've gone through the initiation rituals. Basically, I've been through the wars. I've gone through it. I'm on the inside. I've found the secret. I've signed up for the mailing list. I've got the secret. Paul claims to have found the secret to contentment. Anyone in the room this morning feel like they could use the secret to contentment? No, just me. Okay, good to know. This whole week, in full disclosure, this whole week as I was preparing to preach this sermon, 
I was struck by my complete lack of authority to preach such a message. So I'm preaching to myself first and foremost today because I feel very far from being able to say confidently with Paul that I've found the secret to contentment. I'm 100% content. I don't want more money. I don't want a better job. I don't want more stuff. I don't want more square footage. I don't want to be able to someday own a home in this crazy city. No, not me. I'm 100% content. I feel very far from being able to say that confidently. Can you say that this morning? Not me. Because contentment's such an elusive thing, right? And what blows my mind about this passage is that nothing about Paul's circumstances say that he should be content. Even by our present-day metrics, nothing about Paul's circumstances say that he should be content. He's not rich. He's in poverty. He's not famous. If anything, he's infamous. He's wanted by the government. He's not married. He's single. In fact, most scholars speculate he was likely a widower. He's not in good health. His body's failing. He's been beaten up too many times. Think about the thorn in the flesh he talks about. His body's failing. Nothing about Paul's circumstances say that he should be content. Here's a guy imprisoned, dirt poor, bad health, future looking bleak, and he says he's having a great celebration in the Lord. Listen, I've learned the secret to being content. I think that's the kind of guy we want to learn a thing or two about contentment from. Somebody who's been through all of that stuff and can sit there and say, I've learned the secret. So let's try to learn a few things about contentment this morning from Paul. Here's a few thoughts on contentment from our text this morning. The first one is contentment is something you learn. Contentment is something you learn. Look at the language that Paul uses as he talks about it. Look at verse 11. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content. This is the language that he uses. See, contentment's not natural. It's not the default setting for human beings, if you haven't learned that yet. All the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Think of the very beginning. They're in this garden, lush, full of trees with wonderful fruit, blessings and gift from God. There's just one tree. Don't eat from that one. And in the midst of this garden where they are provided for lavishly with wonderful fruit trees, what do they need to do? They just need that one thing they can't have. That discontentment is just baked in. It's not our default setting to be content. In a world full of yeses, full of divine gifts and beauty, there will always be something just out of reach. Sure, life's okay now, but when I, when I get married, or when I graduate from school, or when I get that job stability that I've been just like working my tail off for years to get to, or, or when we're done raising our kids and they've moved out, or when, when our kids, you know, finally learn to talk and stop throwing temper tantrums. Maybe that's just my experience. There will always be something just out of reach. That's the way that human desire works. I don't know if you can relate to this, but have you ever been driving in a situation where the person who's in control of the music has what I call musical ADD? 
So what this looks like is you're driving, and they're in control of me. They put a song on, and just as the song's like really getting going, it's really getting good, you're really starting to jive with the music and get into it. Right as the song's getting going, it's about to land at that like great moment. It's getting there, and right as it's about to get there, they're obviously bored, and they cut it off and onto a new song. This is infuriating to me. I'm letting you in on some of my vices here this morning. This is one of my biggest pet peeves. This is infuriating to me. But I think that moment, you know, that, that crystallized that moment where the song's really getting going and you're really into it, and right when it's about to get to that beautiful climax moment and it's cut off, that moment right there is the human condition. You're almost there. You're almost at rest. Just need a little bit more, a little bit more here, a little bit more there. We're almost there. And, and just as you're about to get there, something's just out of reach. There will always be something just out of reach. That's a promise. I, was, I took my daughter to a park in, in Mount Pleasant a few weeks back. And it was this amazing park. We get there, and there are four baby swings. This is amazing for an urban park. Most of the parks is like two baby swings tops. We get there, there are four baby swings. My daughter loves a good swing. So we get there, and they're all available. So I make the parenting mistake, never make this mistake, I make the parenting mistake of allowing her to choose which swing she would desire. So they're all the same, mind you, no difference whatsoever. We walk up to these four swings, and my daughter takes her sweet time looking over and analyzing and assessing each individual swing to decide which one she wants to sit on. And this takes a while, and I'm sitting there thinking they are identical. Just pick one. It was my own fault, so I can't get mad. So she eventually, after a while, painstakingly decides on swing number three. Okay. So I put her in swing number three, and, and we're swinging. I'm pushing her. She's having a great time. We're just loving this experience. And then this, this kid who's a little bit older, this other boy, shows up with his mom. And they come, and they plop down in swing number four, just next to us. And it was wild. The moment this kid got into swing number four, I can see it in my daughter's eyes. Everything changed. I can see the look in her eyes. She looks over, and I'm like, oh, no know what's going to happen. And I'm swinging, she's happy, but I can see something's about to go down here. And she starts to actually like lean over and reach over, like she's going to like grab this kid while they're swinging. And I could see as soon as the kid sat down, it was like, I want swing number four. And I'm, and I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing her on the swing, I'm thinking, you could have had swing number four. They were all available to you. You chose this one. By the way, they're identical, but I could see it. Everything had changed as soon as this kid was swinging in a swing she wasn't in. It was wild to me, and it taught me and reminded me, even notice the role that comparison plays in discontentment, even for my not-quite-two-year-old daughter. The role that comparison plays in our discontentment. See, there will always be that other kid in your life. There will always be somebody just older than you, or just younger than you, or better looking than you, or cooler, smarter, more educated, more successful. You will never be the best. I'm just here to encourage this morning. But there will always be someone just ahead of you, or just better than you at something, or just in that job that you want, that role that you can't quite get to. You'll never be content until you put to death comparison 
Because there will always be somebody or something that is just out of your reach. It's the insatiable nature of human desire. And that is why you have to learn to be content. It's something you have to learn. Paul says it's something he's learned. But the thing about learning is that it's hard work, am I right? I've been a grad school student for a lot longer than I would have thought I would be. I've been a grad school student for a while. It's hard work to balance working and being a student and being a husband and a parent. The time, energy, the willpower, time management, it's hard work to learn. Paul says, I worked at it, but with time, I learned the secret of being content. But the beauty of that for us, the beauty of this truth, is that he's not saying that it's just some epiphany that he got, and hopefully you get that epiphany as well. The beauty for us is that if Paul can learn it, you can learn it. If Paul can learn it, I can learn it. You have the same spirit in you as Paul. If Paul can learn it, I can learn it. I have the exact same spirit in me as Paul. So can you. Your life is a laboratory, and you are a student. And every day at that job you want to quit, every day in that school you're tired of, every day in that marriage that isn't healthy right now, every day is a chance to test and probe and examine and learn the secret of being content. So that's the first thing we learn here. The second thing is contentment is not dependent on your circumstances. I love what Paul says, verse 11, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Verse 12, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, whether I'm single or married, whether I'm poor or employed in my dream job, whether I'm renting a tiny apartment or I have the house of my dreams. I've learned the secret in any and every situation, whatever the circumstance. In Paul's day, it was content. I think in our day, it might be happy, the word happy. This word that we use, this idea that we subscribe to, we subscribe to this formula that says, when I get X, then I'll be happy. Our culture talks about this incessantly. When I get more money, when I get a house, then I'll be content or happy. And we all know that this isn't true, right? And if you don't, you will. It's a myth. It's not true. Because the second you get to the goal, so we might even say, and when I get X, I'll be happy. But the second you get to the goal, the second you get X, the goalposts change, right? The goalposts move just a little further down the road. You can have been working at a goal for years, for decades, and you get to that goal, you achieve it, you arrive at it, and you live in it, and you live in it, and it's glorious for like a couple days. And then your mind is filled with what's next, right? Your mind's filled with what's next. You know, when you were, when you were in high school, you're like, I just want to get to college. And then you get to college, I just want to get into the workforce. And you get into the workforce, I just want to get like a real job. Then you get that, I want to get a promotion. I just want to get X, Y, Z. Then you want to get married. And you want to buy a house. And you want to have kids. Then you want your kids to move out. It goes on and on and on. And the world's conception of our dreams and desires are a carrot on a stick. It's always right there. You can almost taste it, but it's just out of reach. 
And that's why Paul makes the point, this is important, that if you're not content now, no change in your circumstances will ever get you there. If you're not content now, no changes in your circumstances will ever get you there. If you're not content single, will you be magically content married? Married couples in the room are going, no, no, you won't. If you're not content in college, will you be content in a career? You might go, oh, I think I'm the exception to the rule. I doubt it. If you're not content before kids, will you suddenly be content when they're up all night screaming, you haven't slept in days, and you have to juggle all the things you were already doing before, but now you have this kid involved? Why do we even think that makes sense? You're not the exception to the rule. And discontentment robs you of joy. Discontentment robs you of joy because it robs you of the ability to celebrate the goodness of God in the moment. I heard one teacher describe contentment as not a destination, but a mode of travel. Like contentment is not some city or destination out on the horizon that hopefully one day we're going to get to. But it's more like an airplane or a car. It's a way you move through the universe. It's a mode of travel. Will some moments in your life be easier to be content than others? Of course. That's a no-brainer. But as a general rule, look at Paul in our text. Here is a guy in prison, likely going to die there. And he says, I'm having a great celebration in the Lord. It teaches us it's not dependent on your circumstances. And the last point, this is the third one. Contentment is a struggle in times of lack and in times of plenty. Look at the way verse 12 reads. It says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul actually says, I've learned to be content in plenty. What? What, Paul? One version says, I've learned to cope with having too much. See, personally, I've not found this to be a struggle. But why on earth does Paul say that? Well, I think because Paul's smart. He's an intelligent man. And he knows the way that money works. And the way that money often works is that the more you have, what? The more you want, right? I remember when I was a student in college and I was dirt poor and I'd put all my money into just being, I went to school in Chicago and so just I put all my money in, into being there and surviving. So I had like no money. I had a little like gray silver flip phone. It was called a cricket. Very cheap and didn't do anything well. I had to press every button like five times to send one letter of a text message, if you remember those days. And all my friends had smartphones, but I had, I had no money, so I had this. And I remember in those years, what I didn't think about was the awesome car I could buy. I was working as an intramural referee at the time. I would have had to work that job for 55 years in order to buy a car at that moment in time. So what I didn't occupy my time thinking about was the things that I could buy, the car that I could buy. I just didn't think about it. It wasn't an option for me. But I remember when I graduated and I moved back to, to Vancouver and I started working a salaried job as a single guy. 
And suddenly, things were options. And I remember in that season when all that kind of changed, and suddenly things were options, and when that happened, now my mind was filled up. Well, what if, well, I, I probably need to get that, like, computer. Well, I, need, I need a TV. Oh, an, an iPad would be nice. Okay, great. Well, what if I had, oh, an iPad mini? Oh, obviously, I need an iPad mini. I need this. I need that. What if I got this? What if I got that? And now you're sucked in, and your mind is filled up with all the stuff that you do not have. Because the human desire for more is insatiable. There's a famous line from John Rockefeller, who's seen as likely the richest man in the history of America. Somebody asked Rockefeller, how much money is enough? And his famous answer was, just a little bit more. There's an interesting proverb in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 to 9, and I think we have it on the screen. The writer of Proverbs writes this, Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. How many of us have ever prayed that? I have not. I have not prayed that. Give me not poverty, sure, I've prayed that. Give me not riches? God, I think I can handle riches. I'll use it for your glory, God, I promise. I think I can handle riches. But seriously, how many of us have prayed that prayer? I have not. God, don't give me poverty. Don't give me riches. Give me just what I need for today. For most of us, I think that sounds like a recipe for incredible anxiety. Give me just what I need for today. But not only does the writer of the proverb pray that, but they say, if I had to narrow it down to two prayers, this would be one of them. There's another example in Ecclesiastes, where the writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter 5, verse 12, says this, The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Because when you have money, when you have stuff, when you have things now, you worry about your money and your stuff and your things. You worry about the things that you have. I'll use that, uh, that silly example of my, my new kettle to illustrate this. When I got that new kettle from my young adult community, I was like obsessed with it. I was so excited to use it. And I remember the first morning I used it, I had it out and it was there, it was shiny, it was glorious. And my old kettle, I had this like $20 Amazon thing that I didn't care about. I'd never cared about it. I put it away, and now I had this new one. And I remember it was the first day I was using it. It's like matte black. And I looked over at one point, and I saw this like white mark on it. And I like lost it. I'm like, oh no, when I come flying over, I'm like, what has happened to my new kettle? And I, it's, just, it's just a fluff. It's just a fluff. But I was so worried about it. You know what? You know what I had never worried about in that way was my cheap $20 Amazon kettle. Had never paid any attention if there were fluffs or scuffs on it. But now, every day, I've recently got an actual little white mark on my kettle, and it bothered me so deeply for days. It stayed with me. Now that I have this incredible gift, this thing that's valuable to me, now I worry about it. 
And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. It's, it's an analogy for that very same thing. You worry about your money. You worry about your stuff. Essentially, it's not all it's cracked up to be. The goal is to celebrate life as a gift, whatever it is that you have or don't have. And that contentment is a challenge, Paul's saying, wherever you land on the spectrum of having much or having little. That desire for more, that thirst is insatiable, and contentment or happiness will always be just out of reach. And I don't know about you, friends, this morning, but I want out of that narrative. I want out of the rat race. And Paul says, I've found the secret. I found the secret to being content. How do we do it? What is his answer? What is the secret? Well, he says it right after that in verse 13. He says, I found the secret to being content. And verse 13 says this, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It turns out the secret has a name. Through him who gives me strength. The secret is King Jesus. King Jesus, the living God, found in flesh and blood as Jesus of Nazareth. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, People do a lot of strange things with this verse. If you've been a Christian for very long, you've probably noticed that this verse is kind of put everywhere and ends up in a million different contexts. One of the ones I see it all the time, I love sports, and I see athletes use this verse all the time. It'll be, you know, like painted on their eye black or something at a football game. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And essentially it's used in this way of like, God brought me this victory. You know, God made me win this football game. And that's all fine. That's all fine. But I think we hear this verse quoted all over the place. And most of the time, almost always, it's pulled right out of context. And I think used improperly. See, the secret that Paul's talking about in this text is not actually referring to some magic Christ-infused superpower that will allow you to achieve all your goals. You know, go get them, tiger. It's not talking about some magic Christ-infused superpower. The secret of Philippians 4.13 is actually about having joy and contentment amidst adversity, amidst, amidst trial, amidst pain. Paul says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This verse we see and hear absolutely everywhere used to empower all the dreams and goals imaginable. In context, it's actually talking about contentment, whether you achieve your goals or not. It's interesting. And odds are contentment is actually a lot harder than winning a football game. In context, he's saying, I can be content right here, right now, in prison, scraping by with mere survival on my goals list. I can be content, at peace, happy. It is enough through him who gives me the strength. He gives me the strength. Paul lived in a moment with a really strong wave of stoicism that preached self-sufficiency, you know, detaching from desire, 
detaching from desire, much like Buddhism would preach today and a lot of the New Age movement of our day, detaching from our desires. But in a culture of detachment from desire and self-sufficiency, Paul's actually saying, don't detach from your desires. God made you with desires. But in dependency, not self-sufficiency, put or attach your desires onto Jesus. In his good news of the kingdom of God. Take all your drive and ambition and work ethic and your craving for more. Take all of that, funnel that, and put that into Jesus. Because he is where contentment is found. That phrase, through him who gives me strength, the word through is a preposition and it can mean either through or in. Meaning contentment can be found in him who gives me strength. In Jesus. In a symbiotic relationship with the eternal king of the universe. He is where contentment is found because he and he alone is enough. He is enough. I once heard one of my favorite authors, James K.A. Smith, say a phrase, which may have been borrowed, I don't know. But he said this, he said, discontentment comes when we place infinite value in finite things. We place infinite value and expectations in finite things. And what that means is, the only place that contentment can actually be found is in the one and only truly infinite thing. The one and only truly infinite being. And that is the God of creation. That is Yahweh. That is in Jesus. The desires of this world and finite things are striving after wind, as the author of Ecclesiastes would say. They're a carrot on a string. But he is enough. He is enough. Do we believe that? And like I said earlier, the Cascades, I've maybe never felt more like I'm preaching a sermon specifically for myself than I do this morning. The grip of the world is strong. Desire is insatiable and it's hard work. It's a long process of learning to reorient our desires. But he is enough. And he alone is enough. I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, do we believe that this morning, Cascades? You can be content right here, right now. With all that you have and with all that you do not have. Not in six months, not in six years, not when you graduate, not when you're married, not when you retire, not when you have a house. Right here, right now, you can be content because he is enough. And Paul's life is all about Jesus. Paul's, Paul's like, I'm having a great celebration in whom? In the Lord. Not in the money that you brought. Not in the food or the drink that you brought. But he says, because at last you renewed your concern for me. He's saying, because at last you lived out the gospel. You got on the gospel agenda. Paul's rejoicing in the, in the Lord. He's working his tail off for the sake of the gospel. He's imprisoned for it. His life is all about Jesus, the one thing. It's all about the gospel of the kingdom of God. And friends, if and when you and I get to that place where we are all about Jesus, where we are all about his kingdom work, 
when our minds are filled not with this thing or that thing that we might need or want, but instead about his vision for our lives, his vision for our families and our workplaces and our city, and we're all about his agenda for our world, when we get to that place, he is enough. And that's the secret to contentment. That's it. And so I want to close with a confession, just to tie up the loose end of my kettle story. I want to close with a confession. You know what I did the very next day after getting a generous gift of a kettle that I'd wanted for probably seven plus years? The next morning, I used it for the first time, and then I went on Amazon and started to look for what other upgrades I could make to my coffee setup. I'm not even joking. And I realized partway through that exactly what was going on in my heart, and I repented for it. But it was like, great, I got this incredible gift of a beautiful new kettle that I've wanted for so long. Now how else can I, what can I get next? What's next? And all I'm saying in telling you this story is that I get it. I get it. And I feel like the last person worthy of preaching a sermon on being content in Jesus alone I do not have the boldness of Paul to stand up here and tell you that I found the secret and learned to be content in all circumstances. I so regularly get caught up in what I want to see God do and what I want to see myself do and what I want for my future, basically all the things that I do not have. I get so regularly caught up in those things. Rather than focusing on the moment, on the here and now, and thanking God, having a great celebration in the Lord for what I do have, which begins with Jesus. And it robs me, and friends, it robs each of us of joy. It robs us of joy. Joy amidst adversity, it's what Paul's been talking about all along through the book of Philippians. Joy amidst adversity. And he says, I can do all that. I can have joy amidst adversity. I can be content no matter the circumstances. In Christ, who gives me strength. In Jesus. Because he is enough. And he's the only, only person who is. Do we believe that, Cascades? Let me pray.